Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast, the place to learn field-tested, no BS tactics to growth hack your online business, and finally, live life on your own terms. Now, your host, Gael and Mark. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. My name is Perrin, and I have two very special guests with me. You may have heard of them. We have today Mark and Gail. How are you guys doing? Fantastic, Farron. How are you? Good, thanks. I let you guys do a two chat because I'm pretty bad at it usually. So hi, everyone. But he's here, and that's the most important thing. We have a really special podcast for you today. We're going to be talking about SEO myths. We are going to maybe confirm some and bust some. Before we do that, though... If you want to check this podcast out on the website, go to authorityhacker.com backslash SEO dash myths. We also want to tell you that we have a special Black Friday deal coming for you. We're going to keep it a secret for now. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but please keep an eye on your email this Friday. All right, so let's jump into these SEO myths. Some of these are weird. Some of these are maybe ones that you have heard of. We're going to talk about what they are, and then we are going to try to decide if they're fact or fiction or if they're in some gray area. All right. You guys ready? The first myth is one that comes up on the Facebook group a lot, and not a lot, but it is based or it revolves around an old idea in the SEO community, something people used to focus a lot on, but don't so much anymore. However, some people seem to still cling to it. And that is the idea of keyword density. More specifically, though, what seems to come up, especially with my gray and black hat friends, is this weird idea of over-optimization. If you don't have black hat friends, are you racist, by the way, or...? I don't know, but everybody should have gray and black hat friends. Okay. Or not 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 gray friends, but gray hat friends and right. black hat friends. Those folks I've seen a couple of times where people have a website and all of a sudden it tanks and the reason they will give is like, oh well, my website just got over optimized. So it's like this nebulous term over optimization and what they're talking about almost all the time is keyword density. So the myth here is too much keyword density will tank your site. And there are a few sources on this before we start kicking this around and trying to decide to what extent this is true. There are a couple of sources that I was able to find. The first one is Matt Cutts. It's a little bit of an old video. Matt Cutts has moved on to greener pastures, of course. But when Matt Cutts was talking about keyword density, what he basically says is that keyword stuffing doesn't work. And that for every instance of a keyword on your site, there are diminishing returns. So if it appears once, that can tell Google that your page is relevant for that keyword. If it appears twice, it might add a little bit of relevance, but it goes into this bell curve where the relevance quickly diminishes and eventually drops off, right? He didn't say anything about whether or not it can actually tank your site, but he did say that super unnatural keyword density does look bad. John Mueller also said in a tweet, I forgot how recently, but it's uh, it was in the last couple of years, I think, that there is no optimal keyword density and he wished people would kind of move on and just write naturally. Of course, Google tells us lots of things and they turn out to either be true or not be true. So 
I don't know, Gail. What do you think? Keyword density is it something uh, to even worry about in two in 2017? We don't. It's funny because there was a discussion about this on the H Pro group about a page on health ambition where they were like, "Oh, you have like three percent keyword density. It's crazy high, etc." And I look at the page, and actually, like most of the keywords come from internal linking, you know, in the sidebar and below the post. So um, two related posts, so like the keyword would be mentioned in the title of the posts, and then that would bump that up. So first of all, I believe Google makes a big difference between navigation and uh, and the content of the articles. So like even in, like most of the tools that you use, they're not good. But the way I see that is, and really what opened my eyes on like how Google I think does things is how they when they first presented the knowledge graph and what it was. And it's like I remember it was like you know they were using the voice search. And the query they were like, it's like, ah, oh, who is the president of the United States? And at the time it was Barack Obama. So they'd be like, ah, oh, Barack Obama. And then they'd be like, oh, you can converse with Google. So you can say, how old is he? And they'd be like, oh, he's 50 something years old. And where did he study? And it would kind of like, they would understand all the concepts tied to the main topic. So the main topic was like Barack Obama. And then there was like, you know, where he was born, his kids, when he became a president, all these things. And the way I feel Google looks at these things on content, it's kind of the same way. So like if you pick a topic, so if you write an article about Barack Obama and you wanted to rank for it, then you would want to have all these things. You would want to have where he's born, like when he became president, when he stopped being president, with the name of his kids, the name of his wife, his mentors, all these things, all these topics that Google associates with him. And I think that's the new keyword density. is kind of like hitting all the topics that relate to the core topic of your articles. And if you're able to do that, then that's, I think, what makes, what essentially does what old keyword density used to do. I believe it worked before, not so much anymore. And we don't give any keyword density instructions to our writers, actually. I actually think there is some truth to this, although probably not in the way that most people kind of think of it. So, and by the way, all the sources for this, we'll link in the show notes, authorityhacker.com forward slash SEO dash myths. But in the Matt Cutts video, and again, this is several years old now, but he did say that, yes, there's diminishing returns. But he also said that if you over-optimize, that's a bad thing. But the way in which it was described, I'm kind of, and the way in which people sort of, in the most recent example in our Facebook group, way in which people were describing it as kind of like they had a fairly low density and then they just made it a little bit lower and something good happened according to according to them it's quite difficult to tell whether this was the sole cause of it just because there's so many different sort of factors which were were unaware of which were, were going on so i mean yeah i think that if you're stuffing your keywords then it's an issue but if you write it naturally and he even gives a, an example of how to do that it's like read the article aloud and if it sounds off when you're reading it out aloud, then it's probably over-optimized or, or whatever. But yeah, like Gail said, we don't sort of mandate a specific amount. We care much more about whether it sounds okay. And whenever someone's asked about fitting the keyword in and stuff in, in, in the past, that's always been the sort of litmus test. Like, does it sound okay? We'd much rather, we're not willing to sacrifice natural sounding language to get an extra, you know, keyword stuffed in there somewhere, so. Yeah, I specifically tell writers not to worry about keywords or keyword density. I just say, please write the best article you can on the topic. And then I will look at it like LSI keywords or related keywords and maybe write subheadings myself or something. 
it is worth pointing out that a few people in the Facebook group, and I haven't seen this, and I hope to, because I know he has this data, but someone on our Facebook group did a little experiment where they had like some articles that were losing some rank, and they retweaked those articles, and the main thing that they did was to reduce the keyword density. And what he claims to have happened was all of them saw a rankings boost. So, so I mean, there are... I, I don't necessarily believe that that's the case. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm not I'm not saying the person's lying. I'm, I'm I'm saying that what else did they change, or is it the just merely the fact that they updated the article that uh, you yeah, know I was going to say freshness update or something? <laughs> I mean, it's not really possible to run double blind scientific tests on these these kind of things, and so just have to be very careful that it's not something else that you're and you're actually attributing it to the 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 keyword density you know actually i've tested it so like i mean i haven't tested the like the optimizing the articles but what i've done the fresh listing is definitely a real thing like multiple times in the past i've taken an article and just literally just changed the date and added one sentence to it and made it rank higher because google is, is definitely likes like updated fresher content Especially if your page has links, etc. I just yeah, and they've just been the specific. Works. They've told us this before, Google. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like an old update called the caffeine update, but uh, you know, it's something that is built into the algorithm, and that if confirmed. So these people they update the content when they do that, and I would say there's ninety percent chance that this is not necessarily like a keyword density thing, but just an, a mere just updating the article thing. Yeah, there's probably many other things as well. Like if they're adding in, you know, clearing up some formatting or, you know, you know, just so yeah. many other things could could affect this. To sort of draw a line under this, though, I would say that there has to be some kind of like, you know, numbers to to consider here. And, you know, as SEOs, we kind of tend to look at the easy to understand metrics and measuring keyword density is very easy to understand. Measuring content quality is not, for example. So, yeah, we just sort of say as a rule like try not to like read it out naturally and if it sounds okay then you're generally gonna be fine yeah when i I think think about it worry about yeah when i think about this i think that it's just way too unsophisticated to really think that google is paying that much attention to it i think it's certainly possible that keyword density was important in the past but everything we've heard from google so far says that there is no optimal keyword density. So I think it's certainly possible that if you're going crazy with like keyword stuffing that you will have trouble ranking. I don't think that if you get over 2%, Google all of a sudden is just like, well, sorry. And then like deranks an otherwise good article that they've liked for a really long time. I also don't think it makes any sense at all to penalize somebody for doing for having a keyword density as low as like 3%. What I think is much more likely is that they, and we have evidence of this, is that Google has moved more towards like semantic topical analysis, which is where we see the genesis of like TF-IDF tools and other tools that help you really analyze the semantic meaning of an article. And they're probably miles beyond even that. So in my view, unless it is completely egregious it is not something to focus on so we don't have any answers we don't have any data but i think common sense dictates that this myth might be probably busted what do yeah. you think i mean also i was talking with tim solo from hrefs and we've been working like on a piece of content together 
And he also goes like by topics as well. So it's like we were working on a keyword tools article and he's like, ah, oh. and we were looking at the one Lewis wrote on Atari Hacker. And he was like, well, you know, what's interesting is I think we're like number five for like best keyword tools, something like this. And he's like, your article is like so much deeper, but you're not mentioning the Google keyword tool at all. Right? It's something that everyone else mentions. And maybe that's something that's missing from what you're doing, et cetera. So when I was looking at how they do things as well, they also do it per like topics covered, et cetera. And I think that's the best way to, you know, the algorithm is probably like very complex and, you know, Google has thousands of engineers and they've been working on this for over 10 years. So if they're still counting keywords to rank pages, they've been pretty lazy in the way they've been developing the algorithm. But, um, but, but just looking at the topics you talk about is, is probably the best way as humans to look at it to optimize your content. All right, myth number two. This is a weird one. This is one that I honestly hadn't heard about, which is surprising because I spent a considerable amount of time just like farting around on SEO forums. But this one is called negative link velocity. I've seen it defined two different ways. One of them, I think, has some credibility and makes a lot of sense. The other one, maybe not so much. So negative link velocity, definition number one, is just losing backlinks faster than you gain them. So if you look at your link curve on a tool like Ahrefs, instead of going up, it's going down. So that's the first definition of negative link velocity. And the myth, of course, is that it affects your ranking and traffic. Definition number two, the one that I might have a little bit of a problem with, is that, but it's more interesting, I think, and people are talking more about this, is that if you build a bunch of links quickly, and then you stop building links. So your link graph plateaus really fast. So like you have a sharp uptick and then it's flat. Google will either think something is fishy or they will think something it has lost relevance and that page will derank or that site will derank. Now there's been one instance of this where I've been able to pry it out of somebody's brain so that I could actually see it and it was a page that had a bunch of links built to it. It was ranking fine. The link graph was flat afterwards, and it slowly dropped in rank. So I have seen one example. I think I have an answer for that after looking at it in detail myself. But before going into it, what do you guys think? Is this something that people should worry about? Is it something that people could affect their site for either definition? No, I mean, there's, I think it's rubbish. I mean, there's so many other factors going on there it's probably just like a correlation as opposed to causation you know the freshness thing you mentioned before could be something around that it could just be something simple as other people are growing so other people are building links yeah you know that obviously affects things in in a big way as well so instead of you necessarily going down it's everyone else going up and then effectively pushing you down because of that so yeah that's that's basically my view yeah i mean i think things you know, it's like, I'm thinking about Hummingbird here. So Hummingbird, essentially, Google ranks you for keywords that are not even mentioned on your page just because they're topically relevant and just all, once again, tied to the knowledge graph. Like, you know, they understand concepts rather than keywords. And you can end up ranking for a lot of keywords if you have a popular page. Now, I think if, like, if you look at news cycles, you know, like every time there is a big news out there, then these things can get a lot of links and could probably overtake like more evergreen content. So I believe that some, if something gets a lot of links quickly, it will get you know shown more for like even keywords that it does, it's not related for, etc. And then as the popularity drops, it will drop up. So for example, a good example for that is 
the number of days Donald Trump has spent playing golf. And like, because everyone's been talking about that. And then if you were Googling golf keywords, then that kind of stuff should show up because there's so many links pointing to that kind of content. But if like, if we were not looking at the velocity, that kind of stuff would overtake a lot of like random golf keywords because it's been like, you know, golf resort, Florida golf resort, that kind of stuff. It would be showing all these news pieces would be showing up because they're picking up more links than sometimes the golf results themselves. And as a result, it would probably make the subs a little bit less good, especially if it's in like two years or something and people don't care about this anymore. So I think there is an effect of like velocity for like news type content, etc. Now, as for Google, like penalizing you for like not having links anymore, I don't think so. I think you just try to go with the trend. Yeah, from my point of view, when I was looking at that one example, I saw exactly what you just mentioned, Mark. It's It was that this person did stop building or this company rather did stop building links and that page did drop but what stood out to me was that everybody else on the first page had not stopped building links so i think it was more a case that people were just competing and they had kind of neglected that page everybody else was building links in the meantime so it wasn't google bumping the page down the serps it was everybody else climbing the serps which can certainly affect where you rank because people are just actively competing. What about this other idea of negative or this other definition of negative link velocity, though, where you are losing links faster than you gain them? Do you think that can affect a site? I mean, it does because you have like you're losing links, right? So even if your competition stays the same, eventually they overtake you. So you can lose rankings. I mean, it's quite well understood that having links is good for SEO. So having less links by definition is bad for SEO. So I think that's like not really, there's not really any doubt about that because your total number of links is going down, right? Yeah, I think that one's pretty easy. And the only really interesting sourcing or data I could find for this one was that if a site's losing links quickly, something's wrong with the site. So either it's like broken or whatever, where people are like actively taking these links off or the sites linking to them are being de-indexed or something. So it's often an indicator of other major problems. So I think there's maybe a little bit of an extra push down if you're losing a bunch of links quickly. But yeah, I think just from a common sense standpoint, having fewer backlinks is going to mean less success than more backlinks. One thing I just want to add as well, I think people need to stop looking at specific cases sort of in isolation that example you mentioned Perrin where you then later looked and found there was these other factors i.e the other sites continuing to build links you know it's quite like a common I guess like human thing like the need to kind of make a instant immediate association with why something's happening and like a cause for it rather than just saying sort of well I don't know or I can't really be sure so, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's like a kind of normal thing that people sort of jump to conclusions and perhaps it's where a lot of these myths originate from. Even worse is what I saw in that case is that that person, and I'm very close to this person, and so I busted his balls plenty about this. But in that case... So we know it's your brother. Uh, we, if that may or may not be. I'm not saying. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a theory first And then this person sought out examples that fit the theory. In SEO, there's no shortage of theories and there's no shortage of bad theories. And I don't think it's necessarily worth like changing your tactical SEO day-to-day activities 
because you've heard of a theory and you've found maybe one example that could possibly fit. And if you're looking at these myths and you're thinking about how it affects your site, it's certainly something to think in mind. One of the unfortunate, or to keep in mind, one of the unfortunate things too, when I was looking at all these myths is that there's a really frustrating lack of data. And that's always going to kind of be the case in SEO because large scale, double blind, controlled experiments are so difficult to run because SEO takes so much time. But it leads to this weird environment of people just reading quote unquote gurus and then pulling out numbers and using other people as sources who themselves haven't run experience. Yeah, this is called so this I, is I, called I, a confirmation bias. It's like quite a well understood like psychological term. If you really want to get into it and learn how that works, there's a really good book. It's called uh, You Are Not So Smart. It's on Amazon and Audible. I definitely recommend that. So that's what my brother's getting for Christmas is a book called You Are Not So Smart. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to start a family dinner. You know? <laughs> no, that's really good. All right, myth number three. This is actually one of my favorite ones because this has happened to myself. It's happened to my colleagues. I've experienced some ranking drops or not ranking drops, but traffic drops that I felt like I personally could attribute to this. And that is SERP features bumping down keyword results or Google features taking up more real estate at the top of the page, thus decreasing the click-through rates of stuff at the bottom of the page. So for example, a Google answer or a carousel ad or a knowledge graph or something above the search results. And the myth in its most extreme form is this will kill SEO and Google will eventually just take up all the real estate on the first page and people will have no real websites to click on. The idea that Google is moving to just be the source of the answers, taking those from other sites. There is some data on this stuff that I think is relevant and I did not go find this data. There's a good article on SEO myths on Moz, and it's really well sourced. And that's where I got these. But a few interesting data points is that there is a up-to-date page, and I didn't know about this, but it's a page that I feel like most SEOs should know about. It's on Mozcast, and it's about the frequency of search features in the search results. So you can look at that whenever you are listening to this and see how often different features are showing up, and you can use it as a reference. But the main takeaway is that the things that appear above the search results in that top real estate where people will be clicking, those aren't as frequent. There are things that are really frequent, like information cards for local businesses and stuff. But the stuff that appears on the top of the real estate doesn't appear as frequent according to Mozcast. There's also some interesting numbers about Google Answers. And the latest thing I could find says that they appear in about 19% of queries. But almost all of answers, it was like 73% of something, link to a site. So if the answer appears in the SERPs, even if it's above everything, there's still going to be a link to a website. And then the last data that I think is rather obvious is that search activity is huge and it is increasing. And the idea there that might play into this discussion about whether this myth has any credence is that even if you're getting bumped down, search traffic is increasing at such a pace that it doesn't matter overall and it kind of balances out. So what do you guys think? I think it's, about quite, this? Uh, it's quite sort of niche specific. Like it, if I run a weather site, for example, I may be a little bit more worried about this kind of stuff because like whenever I want to look for the weather, I just open a new tab in 
Chrome and search for like Budapest weather. Um, and that sort of informs me. And I can only imagine, you know, AccuWeather and all these other sites are pretty hard hit by that because I can only imagine fewer and fewer people will be clicking through. However, and I, this is just something that just actually came to my head right now, is perhaps that means that I'm using that search term more frequently because that's how I want to search for the weather, right? Rather than just saving the weather website in, a, in my browser. So maybe that's then triggering, I'm not so sure in the case of the weather, but for other terms, maybe that's then triggering more displays of you know paid ads and stuff. So I don't know, maybe that's part of the reason why search traffic's increasing because it's like a behavioral thing. And what about for the quote-unquote average authority site builder, Mark? Someone who's not a dictionary site or a weather site. How do you imagine? Yeah, I mean, there, this there's this thing. Was it like a Google Snippets? It's, is that the official term? I forget. Where, you know, it displays, if you, specifically if you question, like, how do I do X? It'll often display an answer or a snippet of an answer straight away. Sometimes recipes, I've seen that as well. And so, yeah, I mean, like we've been trying to, there doesn't really seem to be like a solid way to definitely claim that position. Most of the advice and this, the advice that we followed seems to be like to basically imitate what the person who has position zero is, is doing and sort of try and replicate it, which we've sort of done with a little bit of success. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense for for simple things like that, but for longer queries, it's not really possible to display all that information straight away. And I don't think there's any risk, certainly, of, you know, Google taking over the whole, like, ownership of the space. It's just, like, such a big thing that don't really have the capacity to do No one has the capacity to do that, you know? Yeah, I mean, we have a bunch of these spots, actually. And we're not, I mean, we get traffic. It's, like, it's, even if that, I don't think, like, that's going to, like, kill SEO or whatever. Like, I've heard since... Like since I started SEO that like Google will like only have paid results or, you know, Google will run like affiliate links on the search results to Amazon and stuff like that. Like I've heard that literally since I started SEO and we're not getting any closer to that right now. So yeah, it's just the way, it's just the way things are. It's like, it's still a massive source of traffic. It might vary a little bit, but it's not, it's like the, the business model is making like, a hundred million dollars to Google per day. I don't think they're just going to change everything up tomorrow, being one of the most profitable companies in the world. So they always try to get more clicks to the ads, etc. But it's, it's always going to just change a couple percentages. And I, I just can't see it massively change in the next 10 years. The one thing that I'd be more worried about is people not searching the way they did before. So for example, there's a, an interesting project Google is running right now called Google Lens, where you search with your camera. So like, for example, instead of typing like the name of a restaurant you pass by in the street, you can literally take a photo of it and Google will give you the information. Now you can imagine that they would expand that to other things. For example, you find a dish in a restaurant, you take a photo and Google gives you the recipe. They might link to the source or they might not, but that means you know, given the interface, there will probably not be 10 results when you do that kind of stuff. There might be one or two or three. So the number of spots could be limited once we change medium for searching, which is always just going to be a niche. There's always going to be like text search, etc. But as we get into augmented reality, as we get into like self-driving car systems, the day we get into that, the virtual reality, all these things, 
when these things come in, there will be less search result per query. And that means that the bigger ones will get more traffic from Google. The smaller ones will get a lot less. Hopefully, Google is like more refined as well so like so that they understand each page and they give you the exact pages that give you the best result for your very long-term query, and that gives a bit of traffic to it. I mean, like to, to sort of just add on to that, I think it's worth remembering as well that I forget this exact statistics, but I think it's still less than half of people in the world have internet access on like a daily basis. So, yeah. you know, that number is obviously increasing massively over time as well. So, and the population of the world. Yeah, but you could argue the people that have the internet, they're the people that have money too, you know, it's like in terms of like revenue, et cetera. Like it's like, oh, if you're looking at like- no, not at all. So, I mean, like the, the global population is increasing at a huge rate, as is the middle class worldwide. I mean, despite what you read in the news, like we currently live in like, it's the best time to be alive, basically wherever you are almost. So yeah, I, I think that's going to overwrite any kind of losses from this kind of stuff. So yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's a bit of confirmation bias here too, because when I hear people talk about this, it's usually like they are looking at Google Analytics and they see a traffic drop for a key article. And so they freak out and they go try to find out what happens they look at their main keyword and they go, uh-huh, there's a carousel ad there. And then that's the answer and they can sleep at night and it's not their fault. When in reality... It's always like for everything. You know, it's like yeah. it's never your fault when you did something that happens. Right. It's all Google. And in reality, while and we're going to talk about this a little bit later when we get to the last myth that we might bust, they, it usually unless your keyword is absolutely massive, the majority of your traffic for any article isn't made up for any one keyword. It's hundreds or thousands of keywords. And I typically don't see these people checking all of them, although it's possible, you know, and it's possible that carousel ads or whatever are being implemented across many dozens of keywords. But mostly, I feel like when people are looking at this, it's confirmation bias. But the other thing to keep in mind too here that we didn't talk about, that we brought up, but maybe we didn't talk about as part of the myth, was that even if these things exist, if you get a link in that position zero section, it's possible to get more traffic even if you're not ranked number one than the number one spot. So I think in some cases it even evens a playing field, which can be good. And I know for my own sites and my own personal experience, I've had Google like include my affiliate links for a couple of days in these places. Mm-hmm. And I've had like $100 spikes, you know, so... They're working it out. There's pros and cons. And I think this is more or less busted. It's certainly the case that a new feature can decrease your traffic for a given keyword, but you're ranking for thousands of keywords and you can also benefit from these things as well. So next myth. This is one that I did scare me when I read it. I'm going to be 100% honest here. And after thinking about it, I felt quite a bit better. Let's see how you guys feel. This myth is that Big companies are taking over the SERPs. I think a lot of the fear around this myth is, one, people see big companies showing up for their keywords, and then also that really great article on Viper Chill called How 16 Companies Are Dominating the World's Google Search Result that focused on Hearst Media and their collection of websites that they were building, especially targeting keywords using that like best formula, which is what niche site builders like to do. But the idea here is that big companies that are linking all of their sites together that have super deep pockets, lots of resources, 
are taking over the SERPs. And the fear is especially rooted in the idea that Google likes authoritative sites and that we just cannot compete with them. So what do you guys think? Should we be afraid of all these big media companies encroaching into our niche site space? I mean, it's definitely a real thing. But I don't really think this is like specific issue around to search or, or even to online marketing. I mean, this happens in, you know, food, for example, Unilever and like two or three other companies produce some crazy amount, like 80% of the food you buy in Walmart or whatever. And it's just like a natural thing, like what big companies do, like there, there are various sort of antitrust laws in different countries of different strengths that try and prevent this, this kind of stuff. I don't think we're anywhere near that being a, a real issue with, uh, with, with search results yet um, in, in, in the context of what we're talking about here. But a lot of people are like, oh, you know, it's terrible. How can we ever compete? But it, it doesn't really change anything. I mean, like big sites have always had like lots of authority and the ability to rank much easier than, than, than smaller sites. But there are a lot of advantages, which the, the little guys have too. More around being a little bit more nimble as to what they can do. So a good example is, you know, okay, so some of these big sites are, are creating a lot of best whatever content, but it's difficult to do that at scale well. And as an entrepreneur, or like if you're just doing this yourself, you can do something better than them because they probably have like an SOP and a series of standards that they follow and they just rinse and repeat every time. So it's quite easy to just like look at something they're doing and just do it a little bit better. That's not a huge challenge. You won't have to go through like huge editorial process. You can do it all yourself. You can judge it yourself. And moreover, if you're um, wanting to react to something that's just just happening now, a bigger company may have a sort of a chain of approval that they need to decide and come together and make decisions about what they're going to do. Whereas you can see the thing and just start writing and publish it. So you can be a lot more nimble, as I guess, but also you can drill down even further than perhaps they they've gone and uh, you know beat them on the relevancy thing which i see a lot of the time in uh, when looking at search results so yeah I, I i don't think it's i don't think this specific it's definitely an issue but i don't think this specifically this specific issue has really fundamentally changed anything real quick mark what do you mean the relevancy thing sorry what what do you mean by beat them on the relevancy thing for example if someone's doing an article about i don't know best best mice for gaming or something like that there may be i don't know specifically but there may be like 20 different categories below that and so you you can go much deeper into it so maybe there's one for i uh, probably picked a bad example but one for one for like um i don't know optical mice one for something other and you can sort of small thought types of games yeah, i would say fps yeah, better example you can you can sort of beat them on that because you're you're I'm not explaining that very well. No, yeah, I, I'll, I'll jump in before <laughs> I let uh, Gail pop in here. But basically, like on a site level, if you have a website with that's only about gaming mice, we've seen that relevance come into play. We think and help you rank against other sites that are writing about general stuff, like say the wire cutter is in like. 50 different electronics niches the site that is specializing about gaming mice does appear to have a relevancy boost in the serps yeah what do you think i mean first of all i see like authority system students building successful sites like regularly so and these people are beginners they haven't done it before etc so 
these people are starting with like very low budgets and still managing to make often full-time income doing it. So clearly there is, it's still possible. And the thing is, it's, it's not possible in many industries, meaning we are still in a very immature, uncompetitive market. Like if you think it's competitive now, let's talk again in five or 10 years, because it's like the fact that people can just come in without any capital and end up making millions of dollars doing it properly. It means that the, clearly the big companies, they're still not really into it and they still haven't, they're still not, like it's going to get worse, you know? So definitely still okay right now. However, yeah, competition is increasing like any maturing market. When markets mature, market consolidation happen, you know, capital comes in and profit margins decrease. That's how it works, right? That's how... Um, that's how any kind of maturing market happens. I think we still have like another decade in front of us that should be at least pretty good. And then if you're established by the end of that decade, you should be fine. But yeah, it's quite possible. And once again, as Mark said, big companies essentially they have higher costs. Because why? Because the guy that's writing has like five managers above him and like the manager of the manager and the office and everything, etc. If you're a guy in your garage, like you don't need any of that unless you're Ty Lopez. And you just can produce these things for a lot less, meaning you can go for much lower volume keywords where it would be a loss for the big companies. It would not be a loss for you. So like, I know that Perrin on Hip Hop, you had like keywords targeting like 20 searches a month keywords and they were still making money, like not a ton, but over time it was still a profitable operation to do that. Mm-hmm. Like I can't see, you know, about.com or what dot dash media or something that they're called or some dash media they're called like go after that because it's like for them they wouldn't make a profit so there will always be a room for the small guys but it's still quite easy to even go for the big keywords right now i think yeah i think what i would throw in here is that uh, there are specific competitive levers that small sites can pull that big sites can't of course it's related to the cost but um I just wanted to dive into them because I think there's specific tactics that people could use. And the first one is that small sites can usually win on content, meaning like quality, length, etc. It's much easier for us to write a 3,000, 4,000 word, 5,000 word article than it is for these big companies whose main goal is to produce many thousands of articles a month. It's much easier for small sites to spend lots of time on one article. And so typically where we see small sites winning is having content that just blows the content of bigger sites out of the water. The other place we can focus on that big sites almost never do is page level link building. So we write that article about best automatic vacuums or whatever, and it's 5,000 words. Big companies typically are not building page level links to those sites. They're not going to be running a guest posting campaign for every article or a skyscraper campaign or whatever it is. Small sites can do that. So if we have an article that we know can make us $1,000 a month, it's easy for us to go build a guest posting campaign around it and try to make that happen and really use some muscle to push that one article up in the SERPs. And big companies are almost never doing that. But for this one in particular, I would encourage people to go to the SERPs and start looking at what the big companies are producing because truly it's almost always crap. And also like I do, so like, you know, for the last, 
how do I hack a pro lounge? Every time I do kind of like a market research in, in a new niche and like I look at it and like a lot of niches I'm looking at, like I, most of it is crappy size, not big companies, you know? And it's, it's very easy to beat a lot of like hobby type niches, et cetera. Like honestly, it's, it's still wide open. Yeah. And there are some big companies who do it well. The wire cutter does it extremely well. But in that case, where we see people ranking above wire cutter is in the site relevancy. So the people who are beating wire cutter are the highly relevant niche sites. So the idea here is that, yeah, there's a whole bunch of big companies coming in and then the landscape might look different in a decade. But just based on pure cost and agility, little guys still have lots of competitive levers we can pull. This is my last myth before I'm probably going to turn it over to Gail here. But I really like this one too because it's you know a topic that we talk about and basically every podcast has to do with SEO and that is link building. The myth here is that you cannot buy links and or that every link you buy is bad. Maybe the best source for this is an article I wrote where we went out and it's for sure, our most controversial article <laughs> where in the article that caused the most backlash. But uh, we bought links from five popular link building services and just based on that small sample kind of tried to see, to gauge the general quality of the product and the links that we were getting. But the idea here is that you cannot buy links and that all links that you buy are bad. This is rooted, of course, in Google saying lots of stuff about buying links in the past but I do think there is some gray area here and there's a little bit of nuance and it may even be possible to buy links, but I'm going to turn it over to you guys. What do you think? Can you buy links? Is it even possible? And if you buy a link, are you in trouble? Generally speaking, for 99% of people out there, no, you cannot buy links. You shouldn't buy links from anyone selling them. There is a very small number of people who you're not really buying links, although maybe they price it that way, but essentially you're paying someone to do link building for you in a white hat way. And then that can result in in links. Same as if you know you hire someone to do link building, you know, there's a cost to that. So I, I think that's really the the issue there. But those people are very expensive and uh generally speaking it's much more efficient. Just do it yourself. So yeah, I don't think it's gonna hurt you though to I mean, link quality is like a global thing. It doesn't really matter how the transaction occurs, you know? Yeah. I mean, as long as the webmaster does not receive the money, it's fine. Just needs to, you're just buying links by paying someone to do the work. That's it. But yeah, you, I guess you can, you can quote unquote buy links from that point of view as long as the person you give the money to does the job properly. I would say um, if, if it's the case, uh, like you're actually doing outreach and, you know, a site is saying, yes, we will take your guest post or whatever, but you have to pay us X. Yeah. I would say that that's, that's bad. Good. I mean, Google has told us as, uh, as much, you know, the, the counter argument was, is, well, how likely are you to get caught doing that? And I would say that it's, it's less about, you know, some search engineer at Google discovering that you've done that somehow and, uh, you know, manually penalizing you. It's probably more about if the fact that if they're selling links to you, then perhaps they're selling links to just anyone else who asks. And like a lot of spammier sites potentially are going to get links from there. And so like the general quality of the, the neighborhood, so to speak, will, will diminish potential to, to harm you in that sense too. Yeah, I think the way you get caught is they sell links to other people doing other shitty link building. 
these people one day get penalized, submit a disable tool to Google to try to clean things up, including the site where you got your link, and then boom, you just get caught in that thing, you know? I think that's how you can get caught with paid links more than like someone spying on you or whatever. Yeah, in my experience, you can buy links. They're just ultra super duper expensive and it's difficult to pick out good companies from bad companies. But there's a company that does a pretty good job, pretty well known, Page One Power, and they can go set up a campaign for you. Their minimum contract is $2,500 per month. And they have, I think, a minimum monthly requirement, which is far outside the budget for most of us. And for that, you are not going to get very many links. There are a few guest posting services that have come up every now and then in the past. And usually like the cost per link there is two or $300. And typically these places disappear pretty quickly as well because it's just so much hassle to build links for people yeah. and to like manage. We you guys stuff. know, yeah, you were running a whole agency. The amount of work and frustration required to build links on other people's behalf is why the prices are so high and why the major agencies, the big SEO agencies are charging so much for delivering so little. So I would say minimum, bare minimum, you're, if you want to go buy links, you first have to somehow figure out that that company is doing things all above board and that they can actually deliver the product, which are not easy things to figure out. And it's typically very, very expensive. How does that, Mark, compare to your average cost per link when you go build links on Health Ambition? I mean, it doesn't even come close to to it, like, and it never will. So it's just, you know, like 20, 50 times higher or something to do it that way. So... Uh, Otherwise, we would have spent a lot of money this year on House Ambition. Yeah, so the idea is basically like if you just train someone to do it and pay them. If you take the time to learn it, train someone else to do it, and pay them to just carry out the task, your cost per link can get down below like $20 for sure. And ours, I think, is below $5 now. So when you compare that to like having to pay $200 per link, you can just get so much more SEO done. If you are, you know, training one person to do it. And so, yeah, you can buy links and the big companies probably are buying links. But for us and for people like our audience, I would say it is not a busted myth, but completely unfeasible and not the best business decision. So, but that's why I like it. Like, think about it. If you could just like go to any service that builds links for the same price as we do it, then like it would be very, very competitive because like, because basically you have to build your own systems to actually get competitive prices on links. It makes the number of serious players much lower in the arena. And that's what, keeps it opened if you actually wanted to make it hard to make it work yeah yeah i mean if that was the case you know uh, all online entrepreneurs would just be you know sh- essentially shoppers and they would just go by like go to the content agency yeah. go to the link building agency go to the web design agency and just say hey can you three work together and go build me a site that makes x and then but if that was possible then everyone would just do that or they would do it themselves. exactly then they wouldn't work anymore that's, that's so the- you know Car, yeah, and, you actually uh, have to, you know, build an actual business here. So kind of a bummer. Those are my myths. I know we're coming up on an hour here. We do have some more, and obviously yeah. there are just like dozens of myths that we could talk about. But 
Gail, I'm going to turn it over to you, let you take the wheel and uh, talk about one or even all three of these. Oh, let's do all three. Like, I mean, if people are still here now, they'll still be here again, <laughs> I guess. I think the one that, the one that always makes me laugh is uh, if you use Google products, Google will use the information to spy on you and penalize you if you do any kind of, if you break any kind of rule with Google. So like, you know, I see all these gray hat people like not ever opening Google Docs, not ever using Chrome, not ever using Google Analytics, like not buying an Android phone, <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff, just because like, oh my God, like probably the microphone is turned on on my phone. And if I talk to my friend in a coffee shop about, People. you know, a link that I got that way, then Google is going to get that information and they're going to penalize my site. Same with like Webmaster's console, right? Webmaster's console you don't put any code on your site, actually. You could just put an HTML code. It doesn't give any information to Google. But to some extent, people refuse to use it because they think it gets the spotlight on them. And it makes me, it's like, you will see that on plenty of gray hat forums, etc. That's why people use terrible analytics tools, tools, sorry, like Clicky, because they are afraid of using Google Analytics and so on. And it's just plain crazy to me because that's not the way Google works, right? They want to have an algorithm that looks at the page, looks at the links, and then just filters the links. Like imagine the price of the computing power needed to process all these conversations you would have and understand that it's about like buying links or whatever, and then penalize your teeny tiny site that makes $2,000 a month because of that. It's just not worth it for Google. <laughs> so I don't know what you guys yeah, I mean, say yeah, I would say that this definitely leads to lots of confusion. The and it's it's an area where I think people have where people think Google has way more power than they do and that they care way more than they do. An example of this is like the conversation about dwell time. I think dwell time is one of the most misunderstood concepts in SEO. People think it just equals time on page. And when I have a conversation about it, I always go, Google doesn't know your time on page. And they go, well, Google Analytics. And it's like, yeah, Google Analytics doesn't know the time on page for everybody is what I'm saying, because only a small chunk of the internet uses Google Analytics to look about, you know, to find data on their site. So like, aside from them not caring, aside from them not having the power, it wouldn't make sense for them to develop an algorithm around only the people using their products because they would, you know, screw up the search results and they would mess out on lots of good websites who just don't use Google Analytics, you know? So I am in the pure crazy boat on this one, uh, even though, admittedly, I have been guilty of this in the past. Uh, I think it doesn't really matter for most people listening to this uh, unless you're doing some kind of like gray hat PBN type scheme. It's not even an issue to worry about. Um, and if you are, then, you know, I, I, I think, as you guys said, it's probably the chance of them manually looking through this kind of stuff, even if they are collecting the data in that way is pretty damn small. And there's certainly not any high level algorithm that's, that's processing this. That being said, you know, like if you are using PBNs and, and whatnot, then, uh, does it really hurt that much to use Excel instead of Google Sheets to manage it? I, I don't know. It's not just that. It's like Gmail, et cetera, right? Or even Android. Yeah, I mean, for that, I mean, I definitely, there's nothing you could say that would convince <laughs> me to use Chrome? an iPhone. So, yeah. I, I, uh, so that's fired. I just hope they never get across the Google Maps track or they have to jump in yeah. and do it really quickly as well. <laughs> 
Anyway, the next myth is duplicate content. Probably a, a more popular one, like any kind of duplicate content will get your site penalized, right? That's what people see. And like, there's always like discussions about duplicate content everywhere, etc. First of all, Google doesn't penalize for having some duplicate content on your site. Like, otherwise, how would you quote people? How would you quote an author when you make an argument or something like that? You couldn't because, well, these quotations are probably somewhere else on the internet. The way Matt Katz explained it in an old video, he was like, well, just we just treat it as like blank space. We just see it as like this content doesn't exist, right? So if your entire page is, is duplicate content, it means essentially you have a blank page. And as a result, it's not going to rank in Google because, well, blank pages don't rank in Google. However, if you have some original content, some duplicate content, we'll look at the original content no matter what. And if most of your site is duplicate content, then we'll just classify it as a low quality site because it will be like a site with a lot of blank pages and therefore the whole site is not going to do very well in search. But like people feel like duplicate content is going to you know, infect the entire site and just destroy it. And I feel like when people get penalized or whatever, they're just like witch hunting for, you know, a couple walls of duplicate content and blaming it on that and so on. And it feels a little crazy to me, especially when Matt Katz has been explaining how that actually works a long time ago, but I don't think that changed actually. I mean, what are your experiences with that? I actually have, I think HearPup is a really good example of this. If you were to run HearPup through SiteLiner, I did this a long time ago, so the numbers are going to be off. But if you were to run HearPup through SiteLiner, you probably see something like on, for example, the dog food reviews. There is a significant chunk of duplicate content on each of those. It's like 6% or something. And that's because... The dog food reviews on HearPup, when I wrote them, I was extra sure to include stuff like veterinary disclaimers, like, hey, I'm going to mm-hmm. tell you about food, but you need to talk to your vet. And those are in several different places. And of course, it's easier to just templatize those and pull those in. So the articles that did the best on HearPup that made the most money had the highest percentage of duplicate content on that site. And it didn't seem to matter at all. So I'm with you. I actually didn't know the thing about Google treating duplicate content as blank space, but I for sure anecdotally from my own experience knew that it wasn't a huge deal to have a small chunk of duplicate content on a page, even if, you know, it was the same duplicate content on a bunch of related pages. HearPup did fine. I think it's one of these things that it's been talked about officially from Google in the past, like quite a long time ago, when it really was a problem. A long time ago. Um, And it's something that's relatively easy to measure as well so most people when they're trying to sort of assign rationale or reasoning for an occurrence of something you know naturally this is one of their like go-to points to 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 consider and you know it could be a million other things which are impacting a, a change or a result that you're, you're seeing but because this is kind of at the back of your mind you're, you're looking for an opportunity to relate it back to this so I, I think in the majority of cases, that's probably the issue. Of course, if you're, you know, straight out lifting someone's content wholesale, then it's it's going to be a problem. But uh, you know, most no one listening to this yeah. likely going to be doing anything like that, so I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, it's if you, if most of your site is blank pages, Google is going to say it's a terrible site, you know. So really treat duplicate content as like blank space, or just not being here, basically. And that gives you a better idea of what duplicate content does to your site. It's not a great thing to have if you have a lot, but having a bit is not going to do anything really. 
And the last myth I have is I need to rank number one for my target keyword to make money. And I see a lot of like beginners, especially focus on like, you know, 10 keywords and that's it. And like not do anything more. And really this one is more of like challenging a lot of people's point of views in the sense that, you know, is it better to rank number one for five keywords or top five for 100 keywords? And it feels like to me, it's around the same amount of effort. And when you build authority sites, the, the, the point is it's very often easier to publish a new piece of content that's going to quickly rank in top five, even if it's two or three, and get a lot of pages rank high enough to get some traffic than really obsessing over a couple keywords that could, you know, some of them can be profitable, but like the amount of effort you're going to put in them is you're giving up a lot for working on these few keywords. So unless you have data that proves that these keywords are making an absolute ton of money, I feel like the focus on the number one ranking is not necessarily the best one. And you mentioned it, Perrin, that you rank for hundreds of keywords per page as well. So that adds up to that. Yeah, I think that's maybe even more important to keep in mind is that you don't have to publish a whole bunch of articles to rank, to rank for a whole bunch of keywords. I think one of the most overlooked strategies in SEO is using like that content gap tool on Ahrefs, which basically lets you look at the keywords that your competition is ranking for for a specific article that you aren't ranking for. So if you've got an article about the best vacuums and it ranks well for a bunch of vacuum keywords and you know Google likes the article, you can plug it into Ahrefs content gap tool and see what keywords other people who are ranking for that topic are also ranking for that you're not and just add those to your article. So, you know, even if you you weren't ranking number one for like best vacuum, if you were up there for a bunch of related keywords, it would be highly profitable to just keep editing that article. So it's not only that you don't need to rank number one, it's that it's so easy to add new keywords to articles that Google already likes that it's almost silly to worry about. I think where it does become worthwhile is with these sort of like triple A keywords, something like ranking for cheap flights or car insurance or something, which these tend to be the like super duper authority sites like Skyscanner and Kayak fighting over it. So in in those cases, like the, the effort which they put into getting there is probably worth it. I can only assume I don't have specific data to support that, but I know I know like the difference between number one and five and something like that. So, you know, we're talking like millions per month here. So, yeah, but for the the average vacuum cleaner review site, I don't think it's uh, it's 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 worth it, as you said. All right, I think we're done. So, how long was this podcast? <laughs> an hour. One hour. All right. Well, thanks for listening. If you're still here. And the podcast will be on AtariHacker.com slash SEO dash myth with an S. If you want to get the show notes, if you want to see all the videos we reference to and articles and so on, everything's going to be there. And we have a Black Friday offer coming out really soon. So watch out for an email from us. And thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Authority Hacker Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and send us a screenshot on authorityhacker.com slash bonus to claim your free premium Authority Hacker training.